<clears throat> Good morning. Is that, am I uh, not loud enough? Let's, let's turn it down a little bit. One, two, one, two. Hold your hand up, D. The sound detector here a little bit. There she is. Oh, you ready to turn this on? You ready? Are we on CD? Okay, thank you. Well, morning, everyone. Great to see you for the second class of Colossians. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I do want to encourage you, if you were not here last week, or even if you were here, if you need to hear the lesson like a sermon or anything else that we do twice, and it's amazing that we listen to something for the second or third time or we read something for the second or third time and we realize, I missed 95% of what was said. How could I have done that? That's just typical. I know when I'm reading a book and I go back and reread either the same chapter of the book, I'm amazed at what I did not know was in the book. So let me encourage you to go online and get the CD and listen to it that way or get the CD, however you do that, uh, to be able to keep up with us be able to allow the word to continue to do what God is intending it to do. This morning, <coughs> excuse me, Mike. This morning, as we continue with Colossians, I have a burden I hope is from the Lord, I do believe it is, that as we look at this epistle, and not just this epistle, but every one of the epistles, especially the epistles that we see them not just as isolated letters from an apostle to a church and maybe it's some things about us and God is giving us some information and leadership in that. We don't want to look at the epistles as pieces of information, blocks of information isolated from one another or from the rest of the word. We need to make sure that we see each one of these writings and experience these writings and feel about these writings as the writer did. So when Peter or Paul or John write these letters, they are having in their mind, they are carrying with them an understanding of the Old Testament, because remember the scriptures in those days were the Old Testament until the epistles and the gospels were beginning to be written and then the New Testament were coming together. But they had a comprehensive view and understanding of the Word of God. And so as they are writing, they are gathering into their minds by the work of the Spirit all that God has said and particularly all that God has said concerning a particular issue or an emphasis. And so what we're going to begin to see in Colossians as we especially get into the section verses 3 to 20, especially in that section, and I want to encourage you even now, as you read ahead, and hopefully you will, that verses 3 to 20, especially those that section, but even where we are in verses 1 to 2, that you read them within the context of Genesis chapter 1, specifically Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, because we're going to see over and over again allusions to 
what God has done and his purpose in Genesis. And then we'll get a much broader understanding of what Paul is doing. He's gathering together God's eternal purpose as begun in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he gathers together all that God has intended in the first creation and begins to show how that first creation, that purpose of God, is now being fully and finally fulfilled in this one man, Jesus Christ, and in the church as the Holy Spirit gathers the church unto himself through faith in Christ. So hopefully we can see this and begin to see these epistles in continuity with the Old Testament as completion of that which has begun in the beginning and failed in Adam's sin and God moving it toward its completion in Christ in the birth and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus and in the inauguration of the church remember from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 let's pray <clears throat> father thank you so much for your word father it is astounding incredible overwhelming that you have given us your very heart your very mind father you have shared with us your very self through this word by your spirit and father we want to be because we need to be a people of the word father so that as we regularly read study contemplate allow your word to sink into us deeply and then take up your word in active obedience on a regular basis father we are being spiritually fed strengthened corrected matured father what is happening in us is by your spirit you are literally conforming us to the image of your son father cause this word to be the most important pursuit of our lives through prayer father so that we this church may be a church of your praise and of your honor and of the effect of the gospel in us and out through to the world Father, glorify your name in this church through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, last week, you remember, we started with chapter 1, verse 1. Today, we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 2. I do want to warn you about this. I don't know whether it's a warning that you need to be given. But in the beginning, we are going to travel pretty slowly through this. So today, we're going to do chapter 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul has already introduced himself. You remember last week, Paul, an apostle called by the will of God. You remember that? Paul has introduced himself, and now he's introducing his audience. He's talking to the audience to whom the letter is written. This letter, as with other New Testament letters, is addressed to the saints. Now, it's interesting and it's important and instructive to understand. 
that all of the New Testament epistles are written specifically to a particular group of people. They are written only to God's people. They are for God's people. Obviously, those who are not part of the church, those who are not saved, can read them. But the information and the revelation is for the people of God. And, of course, our prayer is, and God does this, that as unbelievers read these letters, the Holy Spirit uses that power, that, that Word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring these folks into the church. But first of all, it's written to a particular group of people. What group of people is that? The saints. Now, we're going to see this morning, and I would imagine that all of you know this, that the word saint, New Testament use, is not for a particular kind of person or a particular small group of people who have done specific kinds of deeds and who were specified within the church as particularly holy or unusual people. We see that happens, you know, where certain people become canonized, if you would, because they have lived a particular kind of life or they have um, done particular deeds, there have been healings and so on. And so those people are called saints. We have a small group of people within the church who are called the saints. That is not the biblical terminology. The word saint here is the Greek word hagios. It's where it means sacred. It means set aside for God's personal use. <clears throat> it can either be uh, something that is physical or something that is uh, an activity. It particularly means physically pure and morally blameless. So in a general sense, the word saints, hagios, is just a Greek word that means personal particular use. In the Greek, it had no particular religious connotations. You know, you have a glass or a, um, uh, something, a plate that's only yours that no one else can use. That would be your personal use. So that word would be related to that particular utensil or plate or whatever it would be. So that's the word that Paul uses and brings into the vernacular of the church as he begins to talk about God's people. Now, the word hagios, which is the Greek word that we Remember, this, the Latin becomes sanctus, and of course, that's where we get the word saint from. <clears throat> the word hagios is used in the New Testament to refer to God's people. The particular, sacred, set-aside, specific people of God. Remember this from 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy, hagios, holy, sacred, personal for God's particular use. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We also see this in Exodus, and you see it throughout the Old Testament. So hagios is also used in the New Testament as the word holy. So it's the same word saint, and it's the same word holy. For instance, Matthew 1.18, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the word hagios in Mark 1.24. The Holy One of God, again, is the word hagios. In Romans 1.2, the Holy Scriptures, it's the same word hagios. So we, what we're doing this morning and what we want to see is when Paul uses this word saint, he uses it in a much larger context than just talking about someone who's in the church. He's gathering together the understanding and applying it to God's people. 
that he has of the holy God himself. This holy, majestic God has become identified and associated with his people. And his people now carry in themselves the revelation, the life, the activity of this very Holy One of Israel, this one who has imbued us with the Holy Scriptures, who is called the Holy One of God, the Holy Spirit. And so Paul has a much larger understanding and a much broader understanding and a deeper revelation than just, you're a saint, I'm a saint, we're the people of God. It has to do with the person and work of God himself. So we're called saints. We are called by God in a way to identify ourselves within himself. And we carry this so in a way so that the world will see that in us, we are the revelators of this holy God. God is holy. He is completely pure, completely blameless. He is set apart from the creation, utterly distinct. And so in the New Old Testament, this is the word kadash. The word kadash. So what do we have? We have the word hagios in the Old New Testament, meaning holy and saint. Taken from the Old Testament word meaning kadash, holy, separate, unique, pertaining to God. Again, just trying to show us the progression of the use of the word. Therefore, anything or any person having to do with God himself or his purposes is also called holy, kadash in the Old Testament, sacred, belonging to God for his personal use. So I have a list of things here. Holy ground. Remember, Moses, take off your shoes. Why? Because you're stepping on or you're standing on Kadash, holy ground. Ground that is indicative of God's personal presence. Not that the dirt itself is different kind of dirt than any other dirt on the earth, but it is dirt that signifies and stands for and represents the very presence of God himself. A holy assembly coming together, God's people coming together in the Old Testament, the assembling of God's people. It is a holy assembly, a holy convocation. What does that mean? It has to do with the coming together of God's people to represent his presence as the indication that God is among his people. You know, it's one of the things that we have lost in the church. When Israel was commanded to come together, when the horns blew, when the cloud appeared, the people of God came together knowing one thing. We are coming together having been summoned as a congregation before the very presence of this holy God. And they came together knowing this, and they came together reverently, and they came together with awesomeness and fear and trembling. This is how they came together because they knew that they were in the presence of God himself. You know, very much of this kind of holiness, this kind of uniqueness, this kind of majesty, this awe has been lost in the church today. And, and we see it in our church. So if you would, at 10 o'clock, when the Lord has given us the time to start the services, and the, if you would, the band or the orchestra begins the worship of God, What's happening? 
Uh, hey, what's happening? How are you doing? They we're out in the foyer just kind of having a good time, coming on and moseying in, you know, and, and they're doing that. This would never have happened in those people then. You see, what has happened here, we have allowed the laxness, the casualness of the world to come in and uh, treat our God as casual. Oh, we're in Christ. We got grace. It's okay, brother. This is still the holy, majestic, awesome creator God whom Moses fell on his face. He wasn't taken casually. These apostles didn't take God casually. Paul says, walk carefully. Yet today in the church, and I wind up doing the same thing as you do, and I think we need to think about it again. I think we need to begin to see ourselves as representatives, as those who are containers, earthen vessels, remember in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, of the holy, righteous God of glory, this transcendent, eternal, majestic being. Not goody-goody, two-shoes, Jesus, buddy-wuddy. Because when John saw this risen man, John fell at his feet as a dead man. You remember that in Revelation. Let's be encouraged, even beginning today, even this small group, that when folk worship begins, that's a formal time of worship. Let's put aside earthly things and let's tune our hearts to God. Let's give him the reverence that is due him. He's holy. The Old Testament Kadash is the word translated also sanctuary. You've heard of the sanctuary of God. Again, all of these words and all of these applications had to do with the very person of God himself. In Hebrews, you remember the book of Hebrews, or the, actually it's the speech. Hebrews, the Greek hagios is used in reference to the Old Testament sanctuary several times. Therefore, you see, when the word saints is used in the New Testament, it is used for believers. It draws upon several connotations, all of which have to do with God himself and his personal sacred work, the sacredness of the presence and work and person of God. And we are called according to that person, called according to that work. This is our highest calling. This is our highest title, saints, because now God, the Father, is now our Father. As in the Old Testament, the New Testament emphasis is upon the people of, for, and about God, about his honor, his worship, and his purposes, and his glory. So we are a people, you see, in whom God's very presence is located and is revealed by the Holy Spirit. We're people who are the living house of God. We are the place of God's dwelling. We are God's image who faithfully declare and promote the character and the nature of God. 
We are the people in whom the presence of God will fill the earth. We are that people. Therefore, we, every one of us who are believers, are saints. So when someone asks you, Mahoney, are you a saint? What should you say? Yes, by the grace of God, what? I am a saint. How many of you are saints? Now the question is, how many of us live saintly? Well, that might be the question. But because we don't live saintly as we should, and every one of us have failed in this, don't fail to see yourself for who you are in God's sight. Amen? So we are saints who still sin. Yes. But you see, God no longer sees me as a sinner. God sees me as a son, a saint, who is forgiven of sin, but who still sins, but in whom God is still working forth his maturing work. Amen? We are saints. We are sons. We are forgiven people of God. Yes, we still sin, but God is mightily at work in us. So you see, this should show us that the word saints has a very big meaning to God. It has a very big meaning to Paul. So when Paul says to the saints, he carries into this terminology all of this and so much more from the Old Testament and gathers it together and says, this is who we are. We are the outworking, the revelation, the repository of all of that revelation and work of God in the Old Testament of his own person and of his own holiness, of his own character. Imagine all of that now is being manifested in us. We are the repository. We are that holy sanctuary. We are that holy ground. We are that holy place. We are the saints of God. He also says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Do you see where we are? To the saints and faithful brethren. You see the word and, very significant, very significant. With the word and, make sure you see these little words, these coordinate conjunctions, and, or, nor, but, for, yet. There are six of them, and they are very important words. The word and, Paul joined their position as saints. They are saints. That is a position. That is who they are by birth into the new kingdom. That is who they are before the sight of God. He joins their position and their practice. He never says there is a distinction or a separation between position and practice. The two go together. Without the position, you do not have the practice of God. Without the practice of God, you cannot be the position of God. The two go together. Practice produces position. Position proves the practice. The two are one side of the same coin. There is an activity of God in me that proves the position. That's the practice. It proves the position. I can't say I'm a saint of God if there is no activity of God in me, if there's no change. When you put a seed in the ground, if it's going to be a real seed of real life, it's going to produce something happens to it. So there is a practice. There is an activity of God in this position. Word, word faithful, word faithful comes from the word faith, pistos. It has to do with having and acting in faith. 
trusting in and obedient to the truth of God's word. It is an active word that has to do with the embracement of and the activity of the word of God in my life. In Christ. Remember it says, faithful brothers in Christ. In Christ, the object of our faith. Faith is just not one of these general kinds of, general kinds of concepts. It is faith in a particular person. Jesus Christ is the object, and we all know this, of our faith. In him, God has fulfilled all of his purposes and promises. And as he is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, ours is to embrace that, to say yes to that, to trust him, and in trusting him, faith produces the activity of the Holy Spirit's life in me with which I cooperate joyfully and on a regular basis. That's the practice of God in me. Brethren, Adelphos, you know, Philadelphia, it's of the same family. So we are saints. We're joined to God. We're in Christ because of faith, and we're brothers. We're all of the same family. All believers, all believers are children of God and brethren. Now, if you were to ask Jean, <clears throat> we've been married 46 years, or you were to ask her, are you related to this man? She says, no, I'm not related to this man. Now, I don't know why she would say that. She, she says, I am not related to this man. Well, that's in the natural sense the truth. But is Jean related to me? Yes. Now, 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 this is scary, but I'm related to everyone in here. And what's more scary for me is you related to me. You see, we are brethren together. And how we relate to one another and how we minister to one another and how we care for one another and how we feel about one another and how we walk with one another is of critical significance to God. I think one of the most hurtful things a parent can experience is the activity of fighting and anger and discontent and whatever among the children. You know, when one child calls another one a bad name or does something and one causes one to be crying, you know, you, that kind of thing. I think that's deeply hurtful to a parent. And God, I think, must feel the same way when there's discord among us, when there's relational break among us, when we're not pursuing one another, when, when, when we're not ministering and caring and loving one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. We are God's family. And as we'll see in chapter 3 of Colossians, we relate to one another in the same way our relationship to one another is our relationship to Christ. And he'll tell the slaves about their relationship to their saved masters. And he said, for it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So when we're caring for one another and loving one another and relating to one another and praying for one another and forgiving one another and not allowing the activity or something of one brethren to be so offensive to us that we break relationship, when we're doing that, it is Christ whom we're honoring. When we're not doing it, it is Christ whom we're dishonoring. So let's be very careful how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Why? Because this has to do with God himself. And this is particularly 
uh, visible and accentuated in marriage. The biggest devastation in a marriage when a husband and wife are not doing well or when the marriage is breaking up or when there is real uh, antagonism and so on, the biggest problem here is what it says about God and how God carries this. This is the biggest problem. The biggest problem is God, the effect it has on God. And I'm one to always emphasize to a married couple when there's any strife or difficulty or, you know, whatever, that it's God who is being, if you would, harmed in this. It's God who is at the center of this, experiencing the grief over this relationship. So let's be careful how we walk with one another. You see, their position and their practice are to be one. Their position and their practice are to be one. Remember this in James. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, practice is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? How do we know that Abraham trusted God? How do we know that Abraham was a faithful son of God? How do we know it? He obeyed God's word to offer sac uh, Isaac on the altar sacrifice. We see that in, uh, what is it, Genesis chapter 22. We know that Abraham trusted God and was a righteous man by the work that was produced in Abraham's life through faith in God. We know that. Was not Abraham justified by works? Yes, he was. Why? Because the works were proving the position. You see that faith is active alone, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says abraham believed god how do you know that abraham believed god and he was it was counted him as righteousness and he was called a friend of god you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone so again we want to make sure we see that what we do is critical as a manifestation of our position if we're believers and if we are to call ourselves believers there has to be some sort amount of a revelation of the life of God in me in order for me to be called a believer my assurance is not based solely on the fact I said yes to Jesus at Alpha or wherever my assurance is not based solely on that it's partly based on that but my continuing assurance as a child of God is seen as I am walking faithfully with the Holy Spirit submitting to him walking with him obeying him now did I say perfectly and without any um, sin no but even when we sin what is the revelation that I am a child of God what is the revelation when I sin that I'm a saint? I repent of my sin. I repent of it. Every once in a while, you know, we'll have someone in the office, I'll have someone in the office who is in a pattern of sin. And if in that pattern of sin we see a wrestling, a real working with God, a real desire and a yearning not to be 
overcome by this. You see an example of this, or at least a scriptural reference to this, is in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11. Paul gives a description of what this should look like. When I see that, we know that the Holy Spirit is there working with the man or the woman and working against the sin. And so we can give assurance that God is at work in you. But there have been a few cases when the person is walking in a pattern of sin. I don't mean one sin, one a pattern of sin. And it doesn't mean anything. And we show by the word, this is sin. This is contrary to the will of God. And there's no repentance there. There's no thought of conviction. It's just, it's not, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. Well, we don't make a judgment, you therefore are not saved. But we will be quick to say, this is a dangerous thing. Either you're in a very dangerous place with God and a very weakened place spiritually, or this lack of heart's desire to, to obey God, this lack of that, seeming lack of it at least, may be an indication you're not even saved. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I mean, the apostle teaches the church. He's been with this church, remember, a year and a half, and he's written a few letters here. And he doesn't say, oh, you said Jesus said, oh, you, you saved, you saved, you saved. Paul never does that. Jesus doesn't do that. If you endure to the end, if you continue, we're saved by grace through faith. And we're maintained by grace through faith. And if it's God's faith that saved me, it is God's faithfulness in me that will maintain me to the end. And that faithfulness will produce the works of righteousness to some extent in our lives. Apart from that work, apart from that revelation, we cannot say we're saints of God. Where are these people? Colossae, the location of the church is in Asia Minor near Ephesus. Simply put, it's a church in Colossae. Now look at Paul says, grace to you and peace. Paul's greeting is a theological way at, hi there. Grace to you and peace. You know, in fact, interestingly, and of course Evan May knows more about this than I think a whole lot of other people do, Charis was one of the typical kinds of greetings in the Greek world. Hey, Charis! I don't know if they said, hey, Charis, but, you know, it's where you at. How you doing? What's happening? And Charis was that kind of a terminology. It simply meant greetings in a general, in general. It meant goodwill, favor to you. Hope you do all right, or in today's world, good luck. Good luck. Hope you're all right. Hope you have a great day. It's that kind of a feeling in the Greek. It's favor. It's goodwill. However, Paul takes, again, the general vernacular of the day, and he incorporates it into the church to begin to use it specifically, not as general favor or general goodwill, but specific favor and goodwill relating to God for us. So in the biblical vernacular, charis has to do with God's specific gift of goodwill and favor toward his undeserving people. And so he's taken the way at of the community, of uh, the vernacular of the way we speak, and then bringing it into the church and using that terminology that everybody, everybody would understand. And he says, goodwill and favor. In a general sense, the world says that.
But for the church, it has to do with God's personal and specific goodwill, favor, or God's grace, a gift, charis, a gift of God to us. Irene is the Greek for shalom. Remember the Hebrew shalom. Shalom meaning what? What does shalom mean? It means peace. It means welfare. It means comprehensiveness. It means coming together in unity. That's what it means. It means so much more than that. It means health, prosperity. It means peace within. And so Paul again says, this is the work of God in us. It is that work which has taken us as frazzled beings who were at war in ourselves against ourselves because we were at war with God as his enemies. And God has saved us and has caused peace to be now exemplifying and encapsulating our lives. What peace? The peace that God has within himself about himself. God is the only being who is at peace in himself about himself. There is perfect and continual peace within God among the three persons of God. There is never any strife, never any difficulty, never, never any dissension, none of this. There is continual and everlasting eternal peace in God. So what does Jesus says? My peace I give to you. What peace? The peace that God has within himself. This peaceableness, this settledness, this contentment, this satisfaction, this cooperation. Jesus says, my peace I give to you in order that your peace may be full. I'm going to give you the peace that I have within myself. So when we are those people of peace, Paul says, grace and peace to you. It means that God has given us, according to his favor, according to his mercy, his own peace. When we have been saved, we are given the peace of God. How many of you have remember, and we've heard testimony after testimony of people being saved, and they will tell us, I, 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 feel, I, I feel so peaceful right now. I feel so peaceful right now. And it's not disclaiming difficulties. It's not saying, oh, there are no more problems in my life. But what it does say is that when the problems of life come, there is a supernatural feeling, experience, understanding, atmosphere in the midst of the problem that is peace. And that whether this thing works out or not, according to what I would like, I have a settlement in me. I have a settlement in me that everything is going to be okay in a spiritual, in a relational way with God. It's going to be okay. I'm still God's person. We have peace. Remember what Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It is the warfare between us and God before we were saved, having been declared over when God saved us in Christ, now, rather than enemies, now we have been joined into God as his children. It's from God. You see, with this phrase, Paul uses, shows that grace and peace are inseparable, originating with God. Grace and peace are together. The free gift of God is grace. The peace is a result of that free gift of God. Our Father. 
He doesn't only just say God, but he says our Father. In the New Testament, most of the time, the word God refers to God the Father. Most of the time in the New Testament, the word God refers specifically to the Father. The Father. In six of the 635 uses of the title Father in the Old Testament, only seven refer to God himself. So God the Father is the one who is referred to as God. However, Jesus and the apostles regularly referred to God as Father. Remember that. This was a title, but the Father is not only a title. Technically, it is Father. I'm a Father. That's a title. My name is Peter. But in the New Testament, the word Father becomes more than just a title. It becomes a name. It becomes a name. <clears throat> it is the preeminent way we address God. It is the way, remember, Jesus addressed God as Father. The Father is used 130 times in the New Testament. My Father, Jesus says my Father 45 times. God the Father 18 times. So you see that New Testament, when you see the word God, it is the Father. And of course, in the New Testament then, it begins to specify the Father more than it ever did in the Old Testament. Why? Because Father was used to describe the closest of all relationships the relationship between the father and the son. It was a title and a name that disclosed and revealed the closest possible relationship. When we call God Father, we are given the preeminent privilege of addressing God in the same way that Jesus addressed God. Now, we don't typically think that way. Maybe we're not aware of that. But when we say Father, we are saying to God about God the same thing that Jesus says to God about God. And when we say Father, we are saying that we have the same filial family relationship with God that Jesus has with God. When we say Father, we are saying that we are loved by God with the same love that Jesus is loved by God. It's a big word. It's a huge understanding. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing, if you would. And so when we say, Father, let's remember these three things at least that I've just said, and perhaps more. Let's remember that we are saying we are declaring, we are act, act, what do you call it? acting in the same relationship that Jesus himself has always had before eternity with the Father, but that has, he has disclosed what that relationship looks like and what it's all about in the incarnation and in his death and resurrection. Now he brings us into that same filial relationship that he has always had with the Father. It's amazing. No other religion is like this. No other religion has this kind of personal relationship between a God, a deity, and a created people. You see, only in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's only son, do we become God's children. Only in the death and resurrection of God's uncreated son do we become God's created or born-again sons. The same relationship, the same uh, love, the same activity there. 
Therefore, in Christ, God becomes our Father, showing that we are connected to one another by the common life of the Spirit. Therefore, we call one another brother and sister. We are now the earthly community. In Christ, we are now the earthly community. That is to be the image of the heavenly community. When the angels, when God, when the world looks at the community of the church, they are to see what the community of God looks like. So Paul's purpose in this epistle is to protect and promote this divine human family relationship through the way the believers relate to one another and to the world. And he's going to begin, as we progress through this, to deal with those things that come against us as false religions and practices. But before he does that, <coughs> he must teach us a lot more concerning who Christ is, what Jesus has done, what our connection to Jesus is, make sure he cements the foundation of who we are in Christ, what God has done, and then he begins to talk about those activities which would undermine it. So next week we'll continue and get into the next section, chapter 1, what is it, verses uh, 3 to uh, uh, 14.